Please turn with me in Scripture to Book of Revelation, Chapter 21. Revelation 21. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. And he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things. And I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. And one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues came to me and talked with me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. Having the glory of God, her light was like a most precious stone, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. Also she had a great and high wall with twelve gates and twelve angels at the gates and names written on them which are the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel. Three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. Now the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And he who talked with me had a gold reed to measure the city, its gates, and its wall. The city is laid out as a square, its length is as great as its breadth. And he measured the city with a reed, twelve thousand furlongs, its length, breadth, and height were equal. Then he measured its wall, one hundred and forty-four cubits, According to the measure of a man, that is, an angel, the construction of its wall was of jasper, and the city was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with all kinds of precious stones. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the fifth sardius, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth barrel, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each individual gate was one pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. But I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city had no need of the sun or of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light. And the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light, and the kings of the earth bring their glory and honor into it. Its gates shall not be shut at all by day. There shall be no night there. 
and they shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. For there shall by no means enter it anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. May God add his blessing to that reading of his word. This morning we at last come to Revelation chapter 21. And in it we read about the new heaven and the new earth. Now we are immensely thankful to God that those who believe in Christ are saved from hell and from the wrath to come. And that alone is such an inestimable benefit. There's not a single one in hell right now who would not gladly give everything that they ever had in this life simply to be free from this and to be in some place of of utter neutrality, nothing good but nothing bad there, or even to be extinguished or anything along those lines. So surely we cannot forget about this great benefit. But nor can we forget that in God's grace we're not just saved from something, we are also saved to something. When we think of our salvation, it is not just justification, it is also sanctification. And it is not just sanctification, being made more like Christ, being made more holy. It is also glorification. And that we ourselves and brought, are brought into this condition of glory, made fit for the presence of Almighty God. And we live and reign with him forevermore. You know, John 14, you may remember beginning of this high priestly prayer as Jesus is letting them know that he is going away and right now they can't come but soon enough they will here's what he says he says I go to prepare a place for you and if I go and prepare a place for you I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am there you may be also he's preparing a place And as we're going to see in Revelation 21, this place that he is preparing for us is the new heaven and the new earth. Now, people who are considering the claims of the Christian gospel, who are thinking about the Christian faith, sometimes say something along the lines of, you tell me that if I repent and believe in Christ and I get to go to heaven. Wonderful. What's so great about heaven? Who cares? Well, I'll be glad to answer that question this morning, because you need to know. You need to know what's so wonderful about heaven. Absolutely. And in a similar way, Christians sometimes think, I know you, that the Bible says that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glories that are going to be revealed. But we must admit that the sufferings of this world are sometimes pretty bad. They're sometimes pretty intense. And we, and as we're enmeshed in them, as we're living in that reality of, of pain and suffering, we wonder... Is it really that great? Because the pains and sufferings of this life are pretty bad. Well, I don't want us to whitewash that. I don't want us to diminish that in the slightest. I don't want to say, oh, it's not so bad. No. Tell me as bad as you can think. Just think of the absolute worst of it. You know why? Because whatever it is that you can come up with, however terrible it might be in this earth, that's just your beginning of your yardstick, of your measuring stick. Because whatever you can come up with, and you can pump that as high as you possibly can, however bad things might be, that's the comparison to heaven. Because compared to that, these things, compared to what we're going to see, it's not even worthy to be compared. Now, it's a good thing that you're honest about it. It's a good thing that you're realistic. Because if it's down here, if you say things are kind of bad, 
And you say, well, the things in heaven are so much better. It's not even worthy to be compared. Oh, that's, that's pretty good. But if we think of the reality of death and of persecution and of suffering in every way, of broken relationships and broken dreams and of every terrible thing that might happen to us in this life, and it's, in, it's before us in all of its dreadful reality, that's your measuring stick of which heaven is so much better. And likewise, heaven really is an inducement that's worth any price we could pay. Jesus sums it up so well in, in Matthew thirteen forty four. He says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid, and for joy over it he goes and he sells all that he has and he buys that field. That's what he's saying. The kingdom of heaven is so wonderful, so magnificent, that it is worth everything to have it. Everything. And Jesus would not say such things if they weren't true. Now, I'm surprised sometimes of how little we talk about heaven these days. It's rather strange, particularly for a contemporary church that says it cares so much about heaven, isn't it? We really care, or care about evangelism, I mean to say. If we really care about evangelism, then we're going to set things out, aren't we? We're going to set out the stall and say what is so wonderful about it. Well, that's what this book of Revelation is about. That's what we've been going through. It hasn't whitewashed the reality of this life. It hasn't diminished how bad things are. In fact, sometimes you get the impression that it's, it's making it worse than it might be. Maybe it's going to get worse by the end. But it says the reality that this world is actually governed by the evil one, Satan. And that God's people are going to be persecuted in dreadful ways. It doesn't whitewash it at all. But in just as realistic tones, and I want us to understand that if the Bible does not seek to to whitewash how bad things are, nor is it going to overestimate how wonderful heaven is. God is true. We are liars, it's true, but God is true. And there's never been a single thing he's ever said that's an overestimation that people have later found, well, that was a little bit of an exaggeration. And we need to know that about heaven. I want us to understand that if we were to meet an inhabitant of heaven right now, one of the glorified saints, one of the angels, we'd say, you know, I hear it's just amazingly wonderful. And, you know, I'm sure after you've been there a while, maybe it's not so much. You find out about its flaws or whatnot. And he's like, what are you crazy? No, no, no. You have no idea how wonderful it is. And God is not one to exaggerate. Our human language is designed to communicate about God and about heavenly things. It's true. But in our sin, we cannot possibly see them in the beauty and the perfection of what they are. So I want us to see that at the beginning. I want us to understand these basic, these basic points. There's no exaggeration here. If anything, it's going to be better than what could be painted. And also the limitation of what I can say about it. Because in as much as I remember some complaining, even in Edward's day, about just how stark and how scary he painted hell to be, and was he not unnecessarily frightening people? Well, of course, the reality is you couldn't paint it worse than it is. It's unimaginably bad, and, and he fell short. 
But he felt even worse with regard to heaven because his sermons seemed so inadequate and unable to convey the beauty. And, and surely that's going to be the case this morning. And so we ask the help of the Holy Spirit that the, the depth of these things, beyond what I can say, would come home to us. Along those lines, I would just notice at the outset that in the first verse, it's right. This is the command, right for these things are true and faithful. Write these things. The Bible is a big book, and God has revealed a lot about himself and his works. But he hasn't revealed everything. He's revealed, though, the things we really need to know. So there's a specific command to John that he needs to write these things down, because the church really needs to know them. And I think that we really need to know them. Well, it's about the new heaven and the new earth. And the three headings are all things made new. And second, old things passed away. And third, God with us. All things made new, old things passed away, and God with us. So we read in verse 1, Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and also there was no more sea. And likewise in verse 5, Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And that's the element of the new heavens and the new earth that we must first consider, the fact that they are new. Now, of course, in our consumer's culture today, lots of things are, quote, new and improved. Just because something is new doesn't mean that it's great. All right? We have to understand that. The reason, the only thing that makes something new great is, depends on the relative condition of what the old was and also what the new is. All right? If the, if the old was actually pretty good, then the new isn't all that great in comparison. And likewise, it's possible to have an, a, an okay product that you so-called improve, but actually you've just cut cost, and in the end the new is worse than the old. Well, I want us to see that that is not the case, that in God making all things new, they are incomparably better than what they were before. And we have to understand then the, the condition of the old. What are the old things? Well, they're cursed. This creation, this world, this earth, it's cursed. It didn't start out that way. God made everything good. In, in the beginning chapters of Revelation or Genesis, this whole series of he saw this and it was good. He made this and it was good. And it's good and it's good. And it's all very good. That's the evaluation of creation as it comes from the hand of God. But it doesn't stay that way. Sadly, it was cursed. Because in... Genesis 3.17, in response to Adam's sin, the earth was cursed along with people. Because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth to you. You shall eat of the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. And we have abundant evidence of that curse, don't we? Even little things seem to take a tremendous amount of effort, and no matter how hard we work, they're never perfect. That is the curse. And each and every day of our lives, we have evidence of that curse. And we live in this cursed existence until we return to the ground. But one day, this cursed earth will be redeemed. Romans 8.19 says, For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly awaits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility. That's the curse. Not willingly, 
but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself will also be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. And what that means is that at a bare minimum, everything's going to be restored to the way it was before the curse, before there was sin, into the perfection of the garden. And that's pretty good. I mean, who among us doesn't think back to that time before there was a curse, when you didn't have to work hard and things came easily and there was no disease and there was no sin and there was no problems and difficulties among people at all and mainly no difficulties with God. We're not, we're not apart from him, but in perfect loving communion with him. And to walk with him in the garden, that sounds like a great thing. But that's the minimum, that all those things are going to be restored. Now, we must remember, and it's useful for us, when we think of heaven, sometimes people think of heaven as being this kind of platonic situation of, of disembodied pure light and spirituality, and that's not actually the real heaven. That isn't the way it's described. It's a new heaven and a new earth. And that, however, there might be an element of that truth in the present heaven, what we're going to inhabit for eternity is a new heaven as well as a new earth in which all the things that we have now are made gloriously perfect. Gloriously perfect. There will be wonderful animals, for instance, that we see at the zoo, but they won't be dangerous, and there won't be any need for a cage or anything like that. There will be all, you know, the vegetation and, and things like that that we get to enjoy, but all of it in its perfection. Not like now, where even the most beautiful garden is marred by the thought of the immense work that is necessary to maintain it. Not like that in heaven at all. The lion and the lamb will lie down together, as the Bible makes clear. So it's going to be redeemed, but I don't think it's going to be just that. I don't think it's just going to be a restoration to what it is before. I must admit, even in my own human proclivities, as as I'm trying to keep up an old car and, and I buy parts for it, it's hard for me to just buy the same thing it was. I want to improve it just a little bit. I want to make it a little bit better because, you know, technology has moved on and there's better things from, from when it was manufactured. Well, if that's true for me, surely that's true for God. Surely he's not going to just say, well, great, I've got it back up to the specifications I originally made long time ago. I don't think that's going to be the case. And in fact, we're given every indication throughout this that it is not the case. As the New Jerusalem, it's not our subject this morning, but as the New Jerusalem is, is explained for us in the rest of this chapter, none of these things apply to, to Adam and Eve in the garden. They had nice plants. They didn't have streets of gold. They, they had the animals, but they didn't have a city that was full of these multi-layers of gems and precious stones and all the rest of it. Um, we can be absolutely certain and we must we admit that there's an element of which surely what's being portrayed is more than what is just said in terms of precious gems and, and gold and silver. Well, silver's not mentioned, it's gold. But we can be absolutely certain that it's not a mere restoration to the original specification, but it is bringing it into something vastly more glorious. All things are going to be made new. Now, that's the first part of it. The second of it is, likewise, old things, the old things, the old condition, have passed away. And I saw a new heaven and the new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no more seeing. Now, 
The point is that an order, I think, in here for, there's a reason. It's in indicating a explanation. It's an explanation clause. There's a new heaven and a new earth. And what's the explanation for that? For, because the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And that's just a part of existence. That's just the way things go. In order to make room for something new, you have to get rid of the old. Out with the old, in with the new. Some people move into a new house, and, and very often one of the things they do is they rent a skip. Why? Because it's out with the old and in with the new. They want to get rid of these things, and they've got to go somewhere in order to bring in the new things to make it much better. And I say, in this out with the old, we consider what happens. I say, good riddance. There's a lot of this present condition that I'm so thankful is going to be done away with. And so let's think, what exactly is going into that skip, this cosmic skip of God saying out with the old? What's going into it? Well, the first thing mentioned is that there's no more sea. There's no more sea. It seems at first to be a random comment, and perhaps some of us even thinking to ourselves, well, that's kind of a shame. I, I sort of liked it. But the Bible, you see, the Bible doesn't paint it as, as a wonderful seaside vacation. In fact, if you have a chance, you might want to just go through all the mentions of the sea in Scripture, and more often than not, in one way or another, it is a picture of judgment. It is a picture of danger. It is a picture of God's wrath. All right? Uh, fresh water, that's different, and we'll have that. As we see, we're going to have wonderful fresh water, living water in heaven. But salt water, the sea, that's always judgment. Recall that the first world was destroyed by the great flood in Noah's uh, day. We have to think of that. We have to remember that this sea was, in fact, the actual element, the actual means of the destruction of the world that once was then. And likewise, do we think of the Exodus and the Red Sea coming crashing down on Pharaoh and his army, destroying them as a picture of God's wrath and his judgment? And even when Jesus was walking on the Sea of Galilee, you see the, uh, the, the boisterous waves and you see the, um, the threatening and menacing nature of the sea. And the Lord has thankfully promised never again to destroy this world by a flood. But even still, there are local floods as we've recently experienced. And they're, they're dangerous. And sometimes people are carried away and they're drowned in these things. And we don't want that around us in heaven, do we? We don't want that situation of this menacing presence always with the potential for doing harm sitting there. And in heaven, such things as of death, as of suffering, as of, of wrath, they're so far from being a threat that to even have a sea still there would be incongruous. It doesn't fit. It's not an appropriate decor anymore for the situation of this house and this, this family. And so what do we do with it? Out it goes. Into the skip. There's no more sea because we don't ever even have to think about the possibility of God's wrath and God's judgment anymore. Now, the main thing, of course, that will pass away is death. As we read in verse 4, there shall be no more death. And that truly is mind-blowing because death is such a constant companion to us. Even if it's not experienced personally in our own immediate family, Yet around us and our friends and our loved ones and our church, it is there. And even if it has been experienced in our own immediate family many years ago, it remains with us. It's this presence, isn't it? This dark presence of death, reminding us that one day the summons will come for us as well. 
And that's not very welcome. That's not very friendly. That's, I'm not sure that's something we want in our house anymore. And God says it won't be there. There will be no more death. Again, death is not a part of the original created order, all right? We have to understand that much. Because at the very least, what we're doing is a restoration to things as they were in the Garden of Eden. And death was not a part of that original created order. Now, God said to them that if they rebel and they turn against him, Genesis 2.17, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. And there was that warning And it was a gracious warning that they not do it, that they not sin against them, and that they remain alive forever. But they didn't listen. And instead they listened to someone else. And Satan said, you shall not surely die. And they listened to it, and death came into the world, and it's been with us ever since. Now, truly, death has been imposed by God as his curse, as his just recompense for sin. It's imposed by God, but that doesn't mean that it's natural. It doesn't mean that it's not an enemy. 1 Corinthians 15.25, Christ must reign till he's put all enemies under his feet. Who are those enemies? Well, certainly we understand it. Satan and sin are enemies. And verse 26, so the last enemy that will be destroyed is death. That's the last one. As even as we are redeemed, even as we come to Christ and are saved from our sins, even still, though, our bodies are in this body of death and they will die. But one day there will be no more death, no more threat of that. And along with it, these other things, when, when it's explained here in verse 4 that, that there will be no more death, then there's other things that go along with it, that God will wipe away every tear, mainly. God will wipe away every tear. What a beautiful picture. It's not just that someone will wipe away your tears or that you will wipe them away yourself. It's that God will do that. And of course, that's what's so supremely wonderful. In anticipation of our third point, what is so supremely wonderful about these things is that God himself is there. What's great about it is that he is going to be doing these things. Well, back in Isaiah a long time ago, Isaiah fifty one eleven, you remember, so the ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion. That's a picture of heaven. That's what heaven is like. Come to Zion with singing, with everlasting joy in their heads, and they shall obtain joy and gladness. Sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Why shall they fly, flee away? Because I, even I, am he who comforts you. That's why. And if all those things were still present, if all the things that were terrible were still present, you know for a fact that if you were in the presence of Almighty God and he came to you in Christ and he wiped away your tears, would you not be comforted? Who among us would not be comforted by Christ himself doing such a thing? Well, that's what he says in Isaiah. Even I am he who comforts you. Who are you that you should be afraid? Who are you that you should be afraid when God himself says, I'm going to comfort you. He's going to wipe away every tear. There'll be no more death, as we said, and therefore there'll be nothing else that goes along with death. There are some things in this life that are fit, are appropriate for the fact that there's death. You know, we have little diseases, we have colds, we have flus, and it reminds us that one day we're going to die. We have to sleep. By the way, we don't have to do that in heaven. There's no night, there's no sleeping in heaven. But every time we go to sleep is a little reminder of death, isn't it? We stop moving. We stop talking. 
We're unconscious. There's a reminder, again, of death. Lots of things like that are very appropriate for our situation in this life of which death is around us. But mourning won't be appropriate in heaven. In fact, there's going to be a great reversal of the situation that we have now. Because we do mourn now, and we're right to do it. But it won't always be that way. Luke 6.25 says, Woe to you who are full, for you shall hunger. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. And that is no mere hyperbole. It's going to happen. That's a major part of this book of Revelation. It's about this present world. Who is so arrogant and persecutes the church and thinks nothing is going to happen to it. And what it says, and you remember this great harlot Babylon. She glorified herself and lived luxuriously. For she says in her heart, I sit as a queen and, and no widow. I'm not a widow. And will not see sorrow. And that means mourning, by the way. It's the very same word as we have here in mourning. I'm not a widow. I'm not going to see any mourning. Therefore, her plagues will come in one day, death and mourning and famine. It's going to happen. On the other hand, what about us? Well, our situation is going to be reversed. We do mourn now. In fact, a Sermon on the Mount says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. We're going to be comforted, and who's going to do it? It's in this passive tense, isn't it? They will be comforted. Who's going to do it? God himself will comfort them. He will give the world, the unbelieving world, every reason to mourn, though they did not mourn. But for those of us who have mourned over sin, over death, and have put our faith in Christ, we will be comforted. There'll be no more reason to mourn in heaven. Now, one more thing, one more reason about mourning, one more reason why mourning is banned. I said it's not appropriate. It doesn't go along with death. You, you know, here it works. Part of our decor, part of our situation is death, and it's only right that we have some various things that go along with it. And so it's already banned for that. But there's another reason. It's against the rules. You know why? Because it's a wedding feast. And that's one of the rules, you see. You can't be mourning at the wedding feast. Recall what Jesus said in Matthew 9.15. Jesus said to them, Can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? And the answer is no. It's simply not appropriate for a wedding feast. You wouldn't want that at your wedding, would you? Someone mourning, you'd say this is not appropriate. We're not widows. We're not widows in heaven. We're not mourning for someone it is rather the perpetual wedding feast of the Lamb, perpetual wedding feast of the Lamb. And it will always, therefore, be against the rules to mourn. There's no reason to mourn. It's inappropriate to mourn, and it's against the rules. So mourning has to go. It's gone. And along with it, crying. No more crying. Only tears of joy. You wonder how it is that the things that... God gives us, because we will have our physical bodies in the resurrection, we'll still have tear ducts, but they won't be used for mourning. won't be used for crying because of our pain and sadness, just tears of joy. This visible manifestation of intense feelings. John 15, 11 says, These things I have spoken to you that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. He has told us these things in order that our joy may be full. And I wonder if we've ever experienced that. To its fullness. I don't think so. But in heaven we will. And there's no possibility of any more crying whatsoever. 
And Isaiah, in anticipation of what happens in Revelation 21, says very much the same. I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered or come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem as a rejoicing and her people as a joy. The whole decor, the whole situation, the furniture of the new heaven and the new earth is all about rejoicing. That's the theme there in that house. And all the things that are inappropriate, it goes into the skip. And so crying is gone forever as well. And likewise, no more pain. And pain in the sense of toil and hard work and suffering, those things, it's gone as well because there's no more curse. Now, all those things that I've mentioned, all these things that have been made new, this new heaven and a new earth and everything about it made gloriously perfect, that's just the baseline, the background to what makes heaven really so great. Because thirdly and finally, what, re- what makes heaven really so great is that God is with us. And I heard a loud voice, this is verse 3, from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them. And they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And those who have studied this verse maybe probably know that the, the word the tabernacle of God, the dwelling place, the tent of God, is the same word as the verb there. That the tabernacle of God is with men and he will tabernacle with them. You know, the story of, of Scripture has been this tabernacle. We've talked about Genesis. We've talked about the fall of man, that God used to have his dwelling place with men. We used to be in the immediate presence, the blessed presence of God, and we had communion with him in heaven. And then because of sin, we were cast out from that. And the whole rest of the story, the whole work of redemption is bringing us back into the presence of God somehow. And there's been provision, provisional provision, I would say, for our being in God's presence all along. You know, from the burning bush to the temporary tabernacle in the desert to the temple of God making a place in which he might dwell with us on earth and supremely in the incarnation. You remember what it says. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Why? It's translated God with us because God has tabernacled. He has dwelt among us in human flesh but is not yet finished. Yes, Christ is here, the supreme manifestation. He has come. But we are not yet in his immediate glorified presence. And this is God's great project. This is Christ's great project in the history of redemption to bring about a tabernacle, a place where he might dwell with his own people. And here he says it's finally finished. Here he says I've finally made a way that you, my people, may dwell with us. You will be my people, and I will be your God, just like the promise made so long ago to God's people. That's incidentally why later on it says in verse 22, but I saw no temple in it. For the Lord God Almighty and, his, and the Lamb are a temple. The temple is just is a place. It is a place where the presence of God is mediated. It is a place where there is a separation yet. It needs walls And it needs curtains because the immediate presence of God is still too much. And even though it allows us some sense an outer access to God, yet only the high priest once a year under certain circumstances could dare to be in the presence of God. Well, that is not the case in heaven. We don't need a temple to keep us from God. We don't need a temple to bring us to God. He is there with us. 
And there is no veil, there is no wall. He is immediately with us. And there will be no imperfection that will keep us from glorious fellowship with him. You know, there is a, it's a good thing. God had to cast us out of his presence because we're sinners. We cannot dwell in the presence of a holy God. And in eternity, sinners cannot dwell in the presence of a holy God. There is nothing that is sinful or causing an offense in his presence. We know that the only thing for sinners in his presence is wrath. So it's a good thing there's a measure of separation, but those things won't be true. Because God's people will be made fit to dwell with God. And he will make his dwelling place among us. And that is what's so wonderful about heaven, is who is there. Now, if that supreme, wonderful thing about heaven is not so exciting to you, you say, well, actually I'd prefer you talk more about the material benefits of heaven. I really could care less whether Christ is there or not. You're probably not going there. You don't have to worry about that. But for God's people, those who actually believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, we love him. And we desperately want to be with him. And you could keep all the rest of that. Don't really care about the streets of gold. Don't really care about any material benefits at all. We just want to be with him, don't we? And our joy would be utterly fulfilled, being with him forever. And that's our situation. Remember 1 Peter 1.8. Whom having not seen you love, though now you do not see him, yet believing you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. You rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. That is now. That is when we're still separated from him. We can't see him. Sin clouds away. And yet it is still rejoicing with joy inexpressible. Well, what about when you can see him? What about when you are in his immediate presence? And there's no sin whatsoever in between you. What about then? Inexpressibly? Inexpressible joy? You have to find some other word for it. Or whatever you've got now in your best moment of thinking of Christ... It's incomparably more than that in heaven. That's why the sufferings of this world are not worthy to be compared. Not worthy to be compared, however bad they might be. Now, at incident, I'd say, and it's been part, a, a thoroughgoing part of Revelation. We've already looked at the wedding feast of the Lamb. We've mentioned it already, and I just want to say, in passing one more time, that weddings are just a type. They're not just, they are a type. It's not a convenient sermon illustration that we come up with. God orchestrated this. He created the institution of marriage. He made sure that there would be weddings. Why? To point to us to something. And if you think of how gloriously joyful a good wedding is, you have to understand that it is just a type of what is to come. This occasion of great joy that happens not just for one day, but ongoing throughout all of eternity. The real thing whether we had a particularly good or maybe not so good wedding, whether we've been to some, whatever it might be, I promise you that the real thing will be vastly and incomparably better. So as we think about how these things apply to us, I'd say the first one is very simple. It's an inducement to come to Christ. All right? You, do you think of heaven as you ought to? Do you really think of it as the great treasure? Because that is what the word of God says. It is the great treasure that is worth giving up everything in this life. And if you haven't rightly estimated that, if you haven't made that valuation of the property, then you don't really understand. If you think that heaven is, is kind of nice, but probably not worth giving up my current situation for, 
you have got it completely wrong. In all due respect, you have got it seriously wrong. The val- whoever made that valuation of heaven for you is not, uh, not reliable. You need to find someone else. You need to use the word of God. You need to talk to God's people and find out the true value of heaven. Because it is so great, it is truly worth everything that you could ever have in this life and to give up on. And, you know, I would say also, if you have any thought in your mind that maybe it might prove not to be so great, you know, again, the idea of going on a holiday somewhere and you've, you've, you've looked at the, the adverts and you've seen things on the Internet and it's so wonderful and you get there and it's maybe not quite so great. If you're thinking about that about heaven, please don't. I, I want to relieve you of that, that worry. Our only problem this morning is I haven't done a good enough job. That's the problem. And the reality is that it will exceed every expectation that you could make for it. Because God himself has promised that it's going to be such. And if anything, again, because just of how bad things are in this life. And if God, without the slightest embarrassment, can say... Not worthy to be compared. So much better. Well, it must be really great then. And we know that it is. I'd uh, also mention to our people, I said, look, if you are thinking about heaven and you don't really care about being with Christ, don't worry, you probably won't be there, at least not until you come to Christ, to saving faith. I want us to say, on the other hand, that if your heart yearns for these things, and they, they have to, the Spirit of God speaks through this word. He's given Christ himself as speaking to his people. He says, here's what it is. I'm sending you a postcard from heaven. And I want you to see how wonderful it is. Not because you're not coming here, but because you are coming here. If you recognize that, and there's joy in your heart because of it, that is a great assurance of your situation in heaven. Your situation in Christ. Because... You see, his spirit witnesses to our spirit. And it's not just a random occurrence. It's not just something that happens outside, entirely outside of the word. It happens mediated through his own word. And as he speaks to his own people, he has a way of making us know it's true. It applies to us. And I'd I'd ask you to think of this when times are tough. The reality that in Christ we know that we're going to heaven. Thirdly and finally, we've got to be encouraged about our trials. You know, almost all, you could summarize almost all of Satan's strategy, of course, there's other things to it. But almost all of Satan's strategy is summarized in trying to get us to forget about eternity. And trying instead to get us to think about our situation in this world entirely in light in these, these few years that we have here. And if this present world is all of our horizon, whether we're Christians or not, then that is the problem. That is the greatest of problems. Because all of our decisions are going to be made on the basis of what is happening right now in the little bit of time that happens in this world. We can't let that happen. Because if we let that happen, then we'll say the costs of Christian discipleship aren't worth it. We're not going to, we're not going to be willing to give up anything. I'm not even going to be willing to give up playing silly games in order to enable us to come to church in the morning. We won't be able to willing to give up any kind of... If even one of our friends diminishes that friendship because we're a Christian, we're not going to be able to take that. Because all we're thinking about is this life. And it would not be worth it. But that's why we have to be very clear that this world is not it. 
That's why we have to have Revelation 21 firmly set in our minds. Because as soon as that does, then the story changes immensely. Because all those things, whatever thing you can imagine, well, when you've been there for 10,000 years, as the hymn says, forget about 10,000, 10 million, 10 billion, 10 trillion years, and all those things will seem absolutely as nothing. And that is the way they ought to be. Let's pray. Lord, you have shown us wonderful things in your word. And truly, Lord, when we are now in our right minds and considering in the light of day the reality of what awaits us in heaven, Lord, surely the things of this world do grow strangely dim. And our joy and our expectation and our great desire to be with Christ know no bounds. And Lord, if there are any here who are not of such a mind, who are not thinking in such terms, and cannot say that they greatly expect that these things will be theirs because of their faith in Christ, and through the power of the Holy Spirit to keep them, then, Lord, we pray that they would do a true valuation of heaven, that they would really understand what is on offer, and they'd understand just how bad the present situation is, just how good and perfect what you are creating will be. And, Lord, let us consider and have in our minds and meditate that Christ has said that he is going to prepare a place for us. And Lord God, we know that if were we to miss it, we would have given everything that we ever had in this life. <coughs> Gladly trade it to have this great treasure above all price. So, Lord God, help us to be mindful of heaven. Help us to put our faith in Christ and to live in the joy and anticipation that we'll soon be with him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.